The world has changed dramatically in the last 10 years, from the rise of the smartphone to the move to the cloud to new uses of AI. How technology is being used keeps evolving, and it's not slowing down. Jason Hoffman is the chair of the board of directors and president and CEO of Mobile EdgeX. And on this episode of IT Visionaries, he explains why everyone is asking the question, what's next? And he explains the role edge computing will play in the answer. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we are at Edge Computing World with a special guest. Chase, what's going on? Hey, nothing much. How are you doing? We are excited to have you on today. We're going to get into pathology and, uh, uh, okay. Okay. and technology okay. and a little bit about your background and all things Mobile Edge X. So first, how did you get into technology? Uh, well, I mean, I, I started out as a, a scientist and, you know, if you go back, if you go back at least long enough ago, I mean, the only people that really use computers were scientists and accountants. So, so to me, it was always technology as a tool. Like most people at some point in your life, you get obsessed with uh, working on the tool. So spend some time working on the tool. So flash forward to today, for our listeners who don't know, what is Mobile Ajax? Uh, you know, we're a company that was uh, started in 2018 by uh, Deutsche Telekom. We're focused on at least what we call the demand side of edge computing. You know, I mean, we, we, we divided it simple into sort of a supply side and demand side. And what I mean by that is supply side is the typical, you know, here's my IT infrastructure. You know, here's an infrastructure system, put it in a given location, you know, all the infrastructure type things. On the demand side, it's much more about who's actually going to use it and what are they going to be doing with it. Okay, so explain to me... Um the demand side. Ah, so the, uh, on the demand side of edge computing, you know, it's basically this, this question of who exactly is it for and what are they going to do with it? And what's that consumption experience going to be? Uh, so, you know, we found, for example, that many people in the space are spending a lot of time on the infrastructure side of it. For us, a lot of what we do is, is, is on existing devices, net new devices, what the actual use cases are going to be, you know, what are the new sort of, uh, experiences that show up on these types of devices? How do they take advantage of what's, you know, in the network and in the infrastructure? And what do those new backends need to be and so on? So we're a lot more interested in, you know, we're working on that side of things as a company. You know, taking a step back, what what is kind of the the, the state of the edge? I know we've been talking about the state of the edge report, yeah. um, but, you know, in your in your perspective, like where are we at on this marketplace from a supply side versus demand side? Well, there's a there's a there's a couple ways of thinking about it. So one is, you know, you can use the edge word, but the question really is, you know, what does not have a, a clear means of distribution, and where can I not like pay and or you know economically engage, right? So you know, we of course know about public clouds and and uh, you know Amazon, Microsoft, Google. There's of course the internet that sits on top of it. It it connects to mobile networks. It goes to devices and so on like that. And when you sort of think of of the world in a very simple way, that you have clouds, 
uh, that connect to about six layers of infrastructure uh, before they hit a device, you know, all that stuff in between is what we call the edge. And if you look at where it typically is, it's typically in the guts of the mobile networks themselves. Uh, so first and foremost, it's about actually having a, a clear means of distribution and a way for people to economically engage in that part of the infrastructure, just like they do on clouds and just like they do on devices. Now, as far as the maturity level of that, I mean, it's it's very, very early. Uh, you know, our, 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 ourselves within, you know, like the Deutsche Telekom properties is it's a couple of countries. It's, a, you know, a relatively small number of sites, you know, initial sort of use cases and things like that. But, you know, at least what the overall model is, is getting getting sort of tested out. But that but that's, you know, that, that one sort of perspective of just, you know, there's some some interesting sort of spots in the world that people can start putting workloads inside of and then just making sure they're able to do that. So what does... Um you know, what does the current kind of landscape look like? Like how many of those sites are out there now? Like what are... Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, if you take, uh, I mean, let's take a country like Germany as an example, because, you know, you're thinking of something that's in, you know, the order of 60, 70 million people, you know, there like the three public clouds have a total of nine uh, facilities, you know, for the public cloud. So there's three availability zones for Amazon, three for Microsoft, three for Google, uh, they're all present in Frankfurt. So they're all present in one city. Uh, and then when they go on to sort of like the the network backbone from, say, a DT, that goes between Frankfurt, Hamburg, and Berlin. You know, we we have capabilities in those other two cities besides just Frankfurt. Those connect to then 11 locations in the top 11 cities in Germany. Things like the mobile core sets. That goes to like 900 access sites. It connects to about 40,000 towers that then connects to, say, all the country's smartphones. And so a lot of what we sort of look at is those nine public cloud locations and then going and having another 917 locations between them and the device themselves and having this type of difference where in the case of, you know, because you know, technically and architecturally, there really is no distinction between cloud and edge. You know, the only real distinction is that your stuff is off in the cloud. And, you know, maybe the most detailed you know about you know, where it is, is that it's in, 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 a, in, in Frankfurt or it's on the East coast of the U S or it's in Virginia, you know, you may know in a city or a state or, you know, sort of a regional type level in the case of like an edge location, you know, exactly where it is. I mean, you can walk up and point to where the spot is. It in fact has a highly precise and accurate, you know, GPS location. And there's like a, a reason why you're doing what you're doing in that spot. You know, it's not okay for it to just you know, quote unquote, be off in a cloud, you know, sort of somewhere. Yes. What would the reason be for that? Like in that exact scenario, what would the reason for that particular? Yeah. So it can, it can range from, there's like a group of people there that are having a common experience that's best served from that same place. Now you see that in say things like, you know, games like Pokemon Go, where somebody goes somewhere specific in a specific location to then play that together. Well, in those types of games, it makes sense for then the back end of those games to also be in that specific location. If somebody's coming and doing like a Minecraft Earth, you know, where they're going and trying to design something that's supposed to sit in the real world, even though now it's digital, it makes sense for that since it has to occur in a specific location to also have its back end in a specific location. You know, so you'll have, you'll have examples like that. And those can range from, 
performance reasons uh, to a better quality of experience, you know, overall for everybody. It could also have to do with regulatory things around data sovereignty or privacy and the data has to stay there in country. You know, so you have a, a wide, wide range of reasons why. But but it is as simple as, you know, the the the, the second an application has to happen in a given place, it just makes sense that its back end is also as close to that place as possible. So for things that are non-permanent, what about like, you know, something like in an event or Coachella or something yeah. like that? You know, would you have something out in the desert or any, you know? Yeah, because I mean, even if you look at it, so even today, you know, whenever you have those types of events, usually a mobile operator brings in a bunch of trucks and yeah. parks those trucks there. Uh, and what's in those trucks is a totally mobile, mobile network. Uh, and it's used to basically boost the capacity up uh, from that uh, quite a bit. And then, you know, all we're essentially saying is that, you know, let's say, for example, a lot of people are taking video at somewhere like Coachella and it's getting uploaded to YouTube and sort of other things. You know, there's the ability of the, if there's other compute capabilities present around there, then, you know, people like YouTube, for example, could verify those videos and make sure they're okay. They could do it locally. They could reject things sort of here and there. You know, we can guarantee some sort of chain of custody as it gets uploaded for content moderation reasons. You know, it's just sitting there and saying that there's connectivity there today. Uh, you know, there's a couple of little services there today, you know, but if we actually went ahead and let other people do what they would like to do in those locations as well, then that, that that's, that's all that edge computing is. So when you have you know, obviously the amount of humans that are going to be on Disney plus that are going to be on Netflix that are going to mm -hmm. be, you know, streaming video and all that sort of stuff will yeah. increase, going to continue to increase probably, I don't know, I don't know, linearly necessarily, but probably in, in like the U S it'll probably be pretty linear. Um, now they tend to, I mean, mo most of the still tend to, I mean, the funny part is, is whenever you build on more capacity, people just Consumer yeah, more. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I just was imagining, I guess, maybe that you know people are already streaming a lot of video, um, but maybe not. Anyways, the, no, the, you'd be, you'd be. I mean, the, I mean, the thing is, is so just about everybody in the world does have a smartphone now. So if you're over the age of 15, you do have a smartphone, but uh, everybody's definitely not streaming 4K video to it. Yeah, you know? good point. I mean, so uh, and you know the thing about it is. You know, the networks, you know, they're like clearly the networks of today and the devices of today are good enough for people to talk to people. So you can have a real time bidirectional conversation between two human beings. Right. It's also clear that we know how to make the infrastructure of today good enough that web pages and videos load fast enough that people don't really feel like they're sitting there waiting. And then clearly we do things well enough where humans can look at something and rapidly learn it if they need to, or go through a longer learning process because they want to learn a language on, uh, you know, YouTube or something like that. But when you stop and you think it's about human, it's about voice, it's about human vision, and then it's about human learning and the internet and this infrastructure is, is currently designed for to be fast enough for those things to happen. Now, when you start thinking about the human eye being replaced by a camera or a series of cameras, well, now we're getting to the point where the resolution of those cameras 
is higher than the human eye. It can see further out. So when you start thinking about 32K resolution cameras that can see a kilometer out and you can still zoom in to 4K uh, on that, that is a higher resolution than the human eye. And the second that has to occur faster than we would expect because it's trying to identify something and make a decision, then the current networks that are fast enough for the human eye aren't going to be fast enough for a computer eye. You know, similar things, most of the stuff around machine learning and AI today, you know, a a two-year-old baby will learn something faster than a computer does. You can teach a kid how to play chess faster than you can teach a computer how to play chess still. So machine learning hasn't quite caught up with aspects of human learning, but as it does, then it means that this whole infrastructure that we've built is not going to be fast enough for those things. So as we basically start heading into a world where people are talking to machines and machines are talking to each other, and machines are actually using cameras as eyeballs to actually see things, and they're actually using you know, computer brains to actually learn and make decisions in, and we're actually expecting them to identify things visually, right? all the computer vision stuff, and we're expecting them to learn and decide faster than a human would, then the current infrastructure that's good enough for humans is not good enough for that. And that's some future state, right? And and people very often in the edge and cloud conversations now, you know, they'll talk about, okay, well, you know, we need to get down to this latency. We need to do this and we need to do that. And it's like, yeah, we do. You know, when this type of camera would exist for something like this and when this type of thing would happen fast enough, you know, then we would need something like that. You know, a lot of it is just that that sort of difference there. Similar thing when you look at video, we're still going to be consuming video, right? And you can think of things like augmented reality and mixed reality as us still consuming video, but it's just the the characters coming in and the background of the video is from the camera on the device. And what that means is then the video I'm watching is personalized for me and I can interact with it. I don't have personalized Netflix movies I can interact with. The only sort of thing you can do there is, you know, like some of the ones they've done where you can make a decision and get a different ending. Yeah, yeah. Right. Bandersnatch. <laughs> exactly. But but that but that's that's the only type of personalization and interactivity you have in that mass generated content today. When you really start thinking about what are games and AR and MR and you know everything like that, it is really literally just digital content that's coming down, but the background is coming from the real world. Uh, it's interactive, it's personalized, and you're actually meant to collaborate with other people around it. And those requirements are what exponentially increases the technology needs. Just just, just like, hey, it make it interactive, make it personalized, make it here, make it there. That takes more work. And then, you know, the software takes more work to do it. The backend infrastructure takes more work to do it. You know, but it is that simple. Yeah, we were, we were talking to a technology leader at TE Connectivity. Uh, about, you know, autonomous. And you're talking about like each vehicle having all of these cameras, having like 16 high resolution cameras. Yeah. Yeah. And all of the functional components of like the engine, all the sensors and everything. Like a car is more complex. You know, a house is more complex. All of these things, you know, you talk about IOT, but all of these things are extremely complex. You know, your house making a decision about like changing its temperature mm-hmm. is nowhere near as drastic as like, you know, a car swerving to avoid, you know, a seagull or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so if you have those machine to machine conversations that are happening now without a human being involved at all, yeah, 
what is the compute needed for those type of things to occur? Well, I mean, so a lot of them, in that case, a lot of that is, say, in the car itself. The, the need for, you know, something like edge and the network connectivity, it's always the difference between being like an individual and being a population. So the edge is not needed if only, if only one car existed uh, and it just did everything it needs to do on the car. Yeah. The second you actually have to do traffic management, then there needs to be a place where that information comes to. You know, so it's a similar thing. It's like if there's only one airplane in the world, you want to need air traffic controllers. But the second there's actually traffic and those types of things, you need air traffic controllers. You know, where do those exist? So they exist in a hub and spoke in different airports and so on like that distributed a certain way. Well, it's it being the same thing around, you know, the sort of needs there. Now, now a car, you know, is, you know, a car is now basically a two-ton smartphone you know, with, with, with either an exceptionally large battery in it, there may or may not have a gas generator in it. You know, so these things are cruising around and, you know, they're, they're you know, they're basically, you know, 120 KVA rolling data centers, you know, inside of them. So that you can actually put a lot of capabilities in a car. I mean, you can sit down and go ahead and have 20 terabyte storage arrays, uh, you know, 150 to 300 sort of embedded chips throughout, you know, they're, they're, they're cruising around, you know, at 150, 200 million lines of code on a given car, you know, which is, you know, 10, 20 times the size of an operating system and everything else like that. And uh, all that's going to be handled by the car. But it's a second you need some type of coordination, collaboration, some, you know, like group type behavior that then that sort of next layer of edge and cloud comes in. And so would these like edge locations be, is it kind of like, you know, chicken in every pot and an edge location in every, every town over... 500 people? Like, what does this look like? Yeah. I mean, in some ways you could, like, if you look at, um, you know, from a mobile network standpoint, uh, edge locations would basically be, you know, wherever there is like a, a packet core of the network. And, and that tends to be in the top 10, top 20, top 50 cities, depending on how large a country is. It can then sort of go the next step where you can think of, you know, every time you have these you know, 3,000, you know, locations in the country where you can go and plug in like a Tesla car. Those actually have their own private network connectivity. They have a uh, local compute presence. They can do software updates off of those. Uh, you technically call that like a big private edge for that. So it's going to just, it's going to just depend. Now, and, and you asked this question somewhat earlier. I mean, when you look at, you know, on one end, you know, when you look at like clouds, public clouds, they, they tend to have basically a couple locations in a country at the most. And so, you know, they're always going to be in like the, the low hundreds of locations. And then when you start looking at, well, what's needed to deliver, you know, a large scale video streaming service? Well, it tends to be in the low thousands of services. I mean, low, low thousands of locations. And then as you head into, okay, across all the mobile operators in the world, how many mobile core sites are there and, and access sites? Now you're heading into the high tens of thousands to low hundreds of thousands of locations. Then we start heading into towers where there's millions of towers with tens of millions of base stations and hundreds of millions of small cells it's connected to, to sort of billions of devices. So literally as you go through, you sit down and say, well, there's tens of billions of devices connected to, you know, potentially like a billion base stations sitting on, you know, a hundred million sort of towers talking to, and you literally just sort of layer it down. So the possibility really just sort of comes down to, 
you know, how, how dense does this all need to be? And as we go from tens of billions of device endpoints to hundreds of cloud locations, how many distinct layers do we need to basically scale the thing out? I mean, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not rocket science on it. You literally go, can a hundred things talk to 10,000 things? And if 10,000 things can talk to a million things and a million things is enough to talk to a billion things and a billion things is enough to talk to a hundred billion things. Congratulations. You have six layers to the infrastructure. But, you know, like right now, there's tens of millions of base stations and millions of towers connected to yeah. hundreds of thousands of access sites. And, and if you want to do math, like if you want to be within a millisecond of anywhere in the world, you know, then you need about 200,000 locations globally to do that. And so is there going to be an explosion in, you know, vendors that are creating that type of, and this is like the supply side that you're talking mm -hmm. about, right? No, because it's it's not like if you look at take take um you know on one hand we only have three public clouds really yeah. okay and on the other hand on the complete opposite end of the infrastructure there's really only three companies that make ninety ninety eight percent of the world's base stations you know there's hundreds of clouds locations and tens of millions of base stations the open question is for all the stuff that's in between those exactly who's going to do what you know or because from a, a base station guy perspective like an Ericsson Nokia Huawei you could say oh we're just going to get a little more centralized you know do the next layer in uh, or do clouds become a bit more distributed or you know sort of what I mean candidly that's an that's an open question and it's different on a per country basis you know China will be very different than Canada Canada will be very different than the United States the United States is very different than Germany Germany is different from France it's different than you know, they're, 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 there's those sort of distinctions. Now, what I do know is that, or at least what I think, is that the the edge stuff will look and feel more like how mobile networks themselves have actually been rolled out than uh, enterprise IT infrastructure. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because of how the devices are connected to it. Yeah, well, I mean, but also like clouds by definition, you go and you build a cloud, a cloud is actually meant to give the perception of infinite scale and resources and capabilities, right? If you're then going in a very distributed fashion where you're doing these individual points of presence, they're always inherently scarce. So like it's, it's a fundamental different, fundamentally different operating model, uh, economic model, you know, how, how are you even going to, um, I mean, you know, we build these big data centers and stick all the stuff inside because then you only have to go to one place to change a bunch of hard drives. But if you go to side, you're going to stick 100,000 hard drives, not in one building, but in 100,000 distinct locations, someone's got to get in a truck and go there, you know, because you have these funny things like in the base station world where it used to be a $200,000 base station that cost $20,000 to install. Now it's a $2,000 base station. Guess what? It costs $20,000 to install, you know, and if it breaks, someone's got to go out there. Yeah, no, yeah, because the uh, the human capital that it takes to put those things in, is not going to change, right? No, not at all. No, and you'll have like in the case of like, you know, rolling out LTE, for example, in a, a country like the U.S., you'll, you'll have 15,000 people running around in trucks, running up towers and screwing things in and going to the next one and doing that every day for five or six years just to basically build out. For 5G? No, that was even just what happened for LTE. Oh, for LTE, iPhone. you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 5G, it's a little worse because uh, uh, it, it's, it's inherently at the higher frequency is going to have to be more dense. So it means more sites. Uh, there's not enough people to install it, to really install it. Interesting. At least for the dense side. Now that, but that's why, for example, like T-Mobile in the U.S. launched nationwide 5G on like a lower frequency. Yeah. You know, because then um, it doesn't have to be as dense and it travels further. 
you know, if you go from like 600 megahertz and you go up to these like 36 gigahertz type frequencies, uh, well, 36 gigahertz doesn't go through walls. Yeah. So it just needs to be present in more places and it's not going to do long form, but it's a bigger pipe. Switching gears. So you've been, um, since leaving pathology, uh, you've been part of, you know, some amazing organizations, Ericsson, WordPress Foundation, and so on. I'm curious, like, how have you seen the industry evolve in terms of like, you know, you said it's still pretty nascent right now. So what was it like, you know, five years ago? What were some of the things that you were seeing back then that kind of were the uh, signs that this was going to change? Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I made the transition from being a bit more like an end user to being, I guess, a quote unquote vendor in about 2003 when, uh, you know, I was one of the founders of a, a cloud company called Joyent. You know, I was at for 11, 12 years or, or, or so. And, and of course, 2000, I mean, when the company was about 13 years old, we sold it to Samsung in 2016. So it's like, you know, back in for a lot of Samsung things now. I would say that, you know, even starting in 2000, you know, the sort of like 2003, four, five, six, seven type time frame. You know, it reminds me a little bit of right now in that nobody really, I mean, they sort of did, but nobody really anticipated uh, the iPhone and the whole smartphone craze that would happen. And then just the the fact that it would literally basically, I mean, you gotta, I mean, people just don't appreciate that just, just 15 years ago, it was just like 150 million people that had cell phones. And then now it's literally everybody everywhere you know, not just has a quote unquote cell phone, they literally have uh, the most personal of personal computers that's vastly more powerful than something that existed six or seven years ago. Yeah. Uh, these are amazing computers, you know, that we have today. You know, the connectivity is pervasive and, 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 and everywhere. And so, you know, that sort of emergence of the iPhone and the smartphone as the killer device. And then the fact that having to quote unquote go mobile was even disruptive to younger companies like Facebook and Google and so on like that. And they had to respond to it. And then all the companies that showed up in 2007, eight, nine, you know, the Airbnbs and Ubers and, you know, everybody that's basically been, you know, IPOing now is like large companies, you know, you're sitting back to like 2006, 2007, I, I don't think, I don't think anybody back then really realized that it was going to be as big as it really was. You know, um, and uh, and now we're sitting here, or as fast, yeah, or as fast, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you sort of, yeah. I mean, you know, but what you literally it is people say, ah, just you know, sort of, uh, you know, go and and yeah. I mean, it's a world with no Instagram, no WhatsApp, really, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Uber, no like none of these things that are, uh, you know, practically uh, verbs and nouns now. Also, just like that so many companies essentially became an app company, right? It's like, even their website yeah. like doesn't get traffic, yeah. you know, yeah. it's like everything. Well, and then, the I mean, app. and what, 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 and then what happened in the IT world, if you would quote unquote, is that, you know, you can think of cloud, the simplest definition of cloud is, is, is that it's just highly accessible industrialized infrastructure. But that process of industrialization means that you have continuously improving unit economics, there's supply chain thinking, you know, how you're breaking down a components. Like 
just these two funny requirements of let's have highly accessible, meaning like even partners and third parties can use it, industrialized infrastructure, that those two things then change every non-functional requirement of the infrastructure. You know, so how you do upgrades, updates, maintenance, this security, all that gets changed yeah. you know, by these two things. And so, you know, this idea that infrastructure is supposed to be highly accessible, it's easy to consume. And the idea that like a Moore's law type concept gets applied to everything. Because remember, it was just for the CPU. It was just for the CPU, not necessarily for the unit cost of a VM or, you know, so on. But just the fact that you have this like exponentially improving unit economics across every measure was, uh, you know, definitely, definitely sort of, you know, a big change for people. And now when we're sitting here today, I think the big open questions for me, you know, on the infrastructure side, we're still very obsessed with sometimes, you know, technologies that basically pop up. There's still a great degree of automation and optimization and it's going to be a much more distributed system than we've seen before. And these are not easy things to do. It's not easy to automate, optimize, and be distributed in that. And in a lot of ways that, for example, when you think of edge, very automated, optimized because you have the scarcity model at the middle of it and a massively more distributed system than anybody's used to. And, uh, you know, meaning that you're not going to be able, the human brain's not going to go and do a pull down menu and make a decision on where things go because not going to be able to do that well. And then there's this open question of like, is there a post smartphone world? You know, so because we, we see, for example, like most of us sit around and we stare down at our phones. But if we're going to start holding them more up because we're using the camera in it and we're having some interactive AR type experience on our phone, you know, and then we turn it sideways again. So it goes horizontal. So we have a better field of view. If we start doing that, your arm gets tired. You get yeah. sick of holding up the phone. And and, and I don't think we're going to... It's better for my scalings because yeah, I feel like well, my head is down all the time. Well, and I don't, you know, I don't think we're going to build selfie sticks that come out of our necks that you stick your phone on so that, you know, it's a hands-free yeah. you know, type of experience. And it's a pretty small field of view for these things, right? So if if those types of applications are showing up more and more on a smartphone, then you, you want it to actually be like hands-free and you want a bigger field of view. And that actually means it needs to go from a smartphone to like a pair of glasses on your face. Yeah. And you don't want to wear a gigantic nauseating headset and everything else like that. You want to wear like a cool ass pair of glasses, um, you know, like Mission Impossible style glasses. Yeah. And if you sit around and said like, oh, well, let's go from the smartphone as, as being that type of uh, device to Mission Impossible style glasses. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty far out type. That's not, that's not, a, it's still not a device that's possible to do, you know, sort of in that. But there's this sort of question of like, well, what's what's next? You know, there's, there's going to be something next. You know, it could be glasses, headsets, is a drone next, a car next, that next. You know, I mean, every, everyone's got that. But, you know, there's sort of this explosion of emerging devices. And, and I think we're in a similar period of time where, you know, whether it be the next two years, three years, five years, seven years, something is going to show up or needs to show up. It's basically as interesting as the iPhone was when it did. You were a CTO for a long time. What's your advice for our listeners that are kind of sitting in the seat now 
you know, whether they be, you know, co-founders or not, but that are the chief technologists of a company, you know, for some companies that's the CIO, for some it's the CTO. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to like, what are, what are, what's your, uh, what's Jason's takeaways for uh, how to do it the right oh, way? Oh, uh, well, I mean, first don't ever have uh, a strategy based on technologies. Interesting. So uh, you want a strategy based on why you're doing something. And then as different technologies show up, you want to be able to slot them in. So like a good example of this is I'll sit there and talk to people and they'll say, oh, we're adopting AI and we've developed an AI strategy. And sometimes the same people that three years ago or two years ago were doing their blockchain strategy. You know, I'm talking about this and now it's an AI strategy. You know, and so it's this type of thing where there's always some new technology that shows up and then they feel the need to develop some strategy on it. And then two years or three years or five years later, they find out, well, it wasn't really this and it didn't really solve that. And we thought it was sort of here and we got enamored by this technology and so on. Yeah, you actually have to base your strategies on something you'd like to achieve. You know, so for example, we could sit down and say, it's always a good idea to have a strategy around optimization and care. How are we optimizing each aspect that we do? And how are we caring for our customers, caring for our employees, caring for our partners? Well, machine learning, AI, you know, big data, you know, Hadoopy things, analytics, all those different technologies that have come and gone, they all have the same purpose. And the same purpose is they're part of an optimization strategy and a strategy on how to care for things. So what people really need to do is, is to develop technical strategies around why something exists. That's a long-term strategy. You know, there can be something that you could sit down and say, for the next 50 years, we're always going to be working on optimizing what we do and caring for what we have. And as different technologies show up, we're going to get better at that. You know, similar things where, you know, like in the case of like when the big blockchain hype showed up, well, you know, the whole thing there is that the reason why you would do that is because you're actually trying to guarantee the integrity of everything that you're doing. Yeah. Right. And, and of course, sitting there and saying, well, you know, file system checks, checks the integrity of a file system. Okay. How does it do that? By looking at a Merkle tree of hashes. Okay. Well, like a transactional ledger in, in Bitcoin, what does it do? It's a Merkle tree of hashes. You know, and it's like, okay, so, so, you know, it's not necessarily new tech or feels like new tech or something like that. But if you sort of sit down and you say, what company, what data does the company have? And how do I guarantee the integrity of that data as it's actually handed off to different people and so on like that? Then you'd go, oh, it actually makes sense for us to use this technology at this point. Maybe there's sort of a gap here. And so particularly if you're in the business of not changing your strategy every three years, or you're trying to actually do something real and substantial and so on, then what I encourage people to do is to focus on why they're doing things and what they're trying to achieve, and then having a strategy around that, and then having the flexibility that you can modularize different data, I mean, different tech inside of it as you go. That's it. That's all we got. Yeah. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Appreciate yeah, thanks it. for having me. And, uh, I feel like uh, we barely scratched the surface. I... I we got to have you back because uh, I appreciate the insights and, uh, and I know our listeners do too. Anytime you want. Take care. Thank you. 
IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.